Now, since you've had a week's hiatus, and so have I, uh, let's review what we've learned to this point about this letter of Paul to Philemon. The first literary unit of this narrative epistle is verses 1 to 3. We are introduced to the major players in the drama and greeted with the Apostle's benediction, which features the grace and peace of the Lord. Now, let us remind ourselves in passing of how we define grace. Sharon, what is grace? Grace is a free, unmerited gift of God. Bingo, right on the money. For unmerited, we could submit, substitute undeserved, but grace is something which is unearned. There is also a rhetorical or stylistic pattern In this three-verse unit, it contains a symmetrical chiasm featuring the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. That chiasm is a focused mirror paradigm of the central figure in the drama which is about to unfold. The letter revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. The next literary unit consists of verses 4 to 7, where Paul gives thanks for Philemon and specifies the elements of his thanksgiving by means of a chiasm, a chiasm of love and faith pivoting Upon the saints. These saints are loving and faithful believers in Colossae, in Rome, and even beyond, including Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon, mutually mirrored in the Lord Jesus. In the third literary unit, Verses 8 to 11, Paul announces the birth of his child. And I tip my hat to Art Peterson, who succinctly pointed that out to me after last session's meeting. This birth announcement includes details of the father. He is an aged old man. The location of the birth a prison room in Rome. The name of the newborn, he is called Onesimus. And the instrumental means of this generation or regeneration, namely Christ Jesus. Finally, by means of a twofold appeal and a double chiasm, once more, the new Christocentric relation joins the spiritual father, the born anew child, 
and the spiritual relative who will find the newly begotten useful in Christ. Now, this evening, we look at the next literary or rhetorical unit, verses 12 to 16. And as we begin with the verse, with the verse 12, what do we learn now? We learn something that Paul has not yet revealed to Philemon. We learn as we read the epistle that he is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Now I say we learn that, but Philemon already knows this. He knows this before he reads verse 12. How does Philemon know this before he reads the verse? Onesimus has brought the letter and handed it to him. He is standing in front of him alive and in living color, so to speak. So Philemon knows that Onesimus has come back from the apostle Paul. Now, he's come back at the apostles' direction or urging. He has also come back in relationship to Roman law. Roman law required that a runaway slave be returned to his master. The apostle, you will notice, obeys the law without mentioning the law. In fact, the apostle goes beyond the law. How does Paul exceed the requirement of the Roman Imperium? He returns Onesimus, you will notice in verse 9, for love's sake. For the sake of his love to Philemon. He returns the slave to his master. But beyond that, though we have not reached that part in this letter, beyond that, Paul is returning Onesimus without mentioning Roman law, without mentioning his obligation to the state, but he does mention in verse 17, his desire for reconciliation. For love's sake and for the sake of reconciliation, Paul goes beyond the requirement of the law. Perhaps we could say he is submitting to the requirement of Christ. Now, In that phrase, sent back, which appears in this 12th verse, we have a narrative. In fact, as some commentators commentators have pointed out, in this 12th verse, we have a micro-narrative of the entire epistle. How so? Well, Paul says he's sent Onesimus Back, which raises the question of how did Onesimus get away? How did he leave Colossae? And having left Colossae, how did he come 
to be in Paul's company? And particularly, how did he come to be in Paul's company in a prison in Rome? And when he came to Paul in that prison in Rome, what happened to him? The apostle receives Onesimus to himself in that imprisonment with, well, what happened when Onesimus came into contact with the apostle in that prison? We know the answers to those. We've looked at those answers. But here, you will notice this verse captures for the first time the narrative question. How did this all come about? Because Paul is sending him back. Why is he sending him back? How had he gotten away? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the narrative unfolds, even as we have recounted it several times in our series. Now, I want you to notice here that in sending him back, Paul is doing the lawful thing, but he is doing more than that. He is doing the loving thing. He is urging Onesimus for love's sake, as well as Philemon for love's sake. He is urging Onesimus to go back to Philemon, his master. All right, now... I've suggested on your outline that there's a sub-narrative here. I'm sending him back. What's the sub-narrative? I'm sending him back. What's the unanswered question? I'm sending him back. Yes, exactly. Why? That's the unanswered question. And the answer to the unanswered question... For love's sake. For love's sake? Yeah, no, but you see, why, why is Onesimus gone? What is it that has caused him to leave Philemon? You see, Paul does not specify what it is that produced the rift, what it is that drove Onesimus away, or shall we say, caused Onesimus to flee. If I say drove him away, that might suggest some force. I don't think that that is involved here. But we do note in this sub-narrative where he's sending him back, where we ask the question, well, how did he get away or why did he go away? And Paul doesn't specify. Does Paul not know why? Well, let me ask you this. Does Onesimus not know why? Well, of course Onesimus knows why, right? He knows why he fled. Does Paul know why Onesimus fled? Of course he knows why Onesimus fled. (laughs) Does Philemon know why Onesimus fled? Yes. Yes. Philemon knows why. All of our three major characters know why Onesimus ran away, including Onesimus himself, but Paul doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't specify the precise detail. He does not mention, Paul does not mention what he knew. Why? Why does he not 
particularize the offense? Why does he not specify the potential crime? Why does he not detail the cause that took Onesimus away from Colossae? Well, he will deal with the offense. He will deal with the unspecified offense in verse 18. Not even there will he detail what it is. But here in this 12th verse, he is featuring, focusing, concentrating on drawing Philemon to love his child. Philemon, for love's sake, I ask you to love my child who I'm sending back to you as the initial stage of an affectionate reconciliation. Affectionate reconciliation. You are going to receive him with affection as a new man, a newborn in Christ Jesus, as you yourself are a new man, newborn once upon a time in Christ Jesus. Now that means that there are layers of rippling narratives interfacing the relationships in this letter. Philemon learns in this uh, section, or just before this section, he learns that Onesimus is the child or the son of Paul. I have begotten a child. Verse 10. Philemon also learns that his slave is a friend and fellow companion, co-companion to the one whom Philemon owes his own conversion to Christ to. It was realized through Paul that Philemon came to know the Lord Jesus. And Philemon learns that his slave is a fellow prisoner with Paul, a fellow prisoner with Paul in far off Rome. And Paul has a very strong emotional and spiritual attachment to Onesimus, his slave, for he calls him, notice in this 12th verse, Paul calls the slave of Philemon his very heart. So deep is the intimacy between Paul and Onesimus, spiritually speaking, in Christ Jesus, that he can even describe him as his very own heart. So we pause to ponder for a moment. We pause to perhaps even speculate a moment. 
we pause to think perhaps a little more deeply, profoundly, about the return of Onesimus. The return of Onesimus. Is it any deeper or richer than just simply the slave walking through the door of his master's home in Colossae? Is there anything else potentially involved, potentially joined in the return of Onesimus to Philemon? And you're pondering leads you nowhere. Your pondering leads you to say, help. Your pondering leads you to ponder. What do you think? Thinking speculatively, the return of Onesimus, is there anything deeper there? Potentially deeper there. David? Paul's directing Onesimus to, to return. He doesn't mention why he uh, fled, and it saves him from getting mired in some sort of debate over whether his plea was at all justified. That's fine. But in essence, we've said that already. We've said that already. Is there anything more? That is a fine summary of what we have described. But will you take a step beyond? David, they want you to to say it louder. (laughs) He was urging uh, Onesimus, if I can speak for him, he was urging Onesimus to come back so that Philemon would receive him in reconciliation as a fellow heir in Christ. Did I adequately represent you? Thank you. All right, well, yes. I'll raise my hand now. Go ahead. Apostolic parousia, is that what you have in mind? Potential apostolic parousia. (coughs) What do we mean by the apostolic parousia? Paul, in his letters, in several instances, talks about his coming. He will come to the recipients of his letters almost as if he is using the imagery of the parousia of Christ, the coming of the Lord Jesus. 
Now, it may be a reach here <clears throat> to suggest that this particular instance is apostolic parousia. But the coming of Onesimus is at least as the coming of Paul, isn't it? Whether it's an apostolic parousia coming, it is definitely my very heart coming back to you. So, as Onesimus comes to Philemon, it is as if the apostle himself, his very heart itself, comes to Philemon. So that, in receiving Onesimus, what is Philemon doing? He is receiving Paul. That's exactly right. Now, at the end of this letter, Paul is actually going to say he is going to come. At least he intends to come and be physically present. But here he intimates, you see, he intimates that at the return of Onesimus, there is the coming of the apostle himself. You receive this person, you receive my person. You receive him, your slave, you receive me, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive this bond slave, you receive me, a bond slave and prisoner of the Lord Jesus. All right, this is imagery that the apostle has used in other epistles. The emphasis here in this epistle is upon the fact that he's in prison, which draws out the heartstrings of Philemon in sympathy to him and in sympathy also to Onesimus, who is with him. Yes, David. I guess what I was trying to uh, articulate is Onesimus was changed radically, became the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul's child. His returning is the occasion for Philemon to be transformed and changed. He's already saved, but um, to have a replete and uh, complete change in attitude and not hold on to Onesimus as a slave, but as a fellow heir. There's a change that occurs in Philemon also. Agreed. Uh, that's fine. Um, I'm actually trying to reinforce the, shall we say, the poignancy of that by suggesting that part of that, shall we say, motivation to change is that in receiving the slave, he's receiving the apostle as well. Possibly. Yes, Cheryl. I keep having the story of the prodigal son is, is at the back of my head, you know, going that the prodigal son was received by the father, by his father. He returned after running away. True. True. He, however, was not a slave of his father. So uh, there is there is the returning uh, sinner motif there. At that, I agree. Uh, Robert, were you, were you halfway up? Or halfway? I was thinking, um, you know, Onesimus is not being returned under guard or under force of any kind. 
I mean, when he left Paul, he could have gone any direction he wanted to. That's true. Yeah. We want to talk about motivation a little later. Yes, Nancy? I'm, I'm sure there was a, a great element of fear of, on, upon Onesimus' return. I mean, he was probably very fearful of what was going to transpire because if he was Philemon's slave and he belonged to him, then there's some kind of laws regarding that. Yeah, I, I think that's possible. Uh, I, I wouldn't rule it out. It certainly is an uncertainty about how he's going to be received. One of the reasons that he's carrying this letter in which the apostle is appealing for him to be received as a Christian and more than a Christian, namely a brother and fellow heir, as David has used that language. Scott, you had your hand up? Uh, yeah, I was just wondering if maybe Philemon, as in the case with Timothy, uh, is... The relationship between Paul and Philemon, being one of father and son, reflects the relationship between the father in heaven, who has his heart being a son, who is being sick. Uh, I didn't ponder that far. <laughs> now, I don't discourage you from pondering that far. That's fine. Uh, it's just so, verse 10 of, uh, I appeal to you my ch uh, for my child, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment, uh, then right after that sentence that ends at verse 11 is, I have sent him back to you in prison. That is sending my very heart. So, that's where I was thinking. It is certainly imagery which could be uh, analogous to the uh, sending of the Son of God by God the Father. Um, but as I said, I didn't go quite that far. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm stopping at... <laughs> Onesimus comes as the apostle himself comes. Pam, you had your hand up. Yeah, is a sense Onesimus is a slave, is he educated? We don't know. Because he mentions, you know, later on Paul mentions about writing and so forth. And I kept thinking, well, maybe he was a scribe to Paul while he was in prison. Unlikely. Unlikely. Unlikely that he would have that kind of a role. Okay. Yeah. Well, not just as a slave, but it'd be unlikely that he that but that Paul would have had someone like Timothy as his scribe, as he actually does have in other instances. Timothy is uh, is Paul's scribe in other circumstances. So Tim, Timothy being with Paul here in prison, Onesimus would not have fulfilled that role. Now, as far as the education of slaves, some slaves were educated in Greco-Roman culture; some were not. So we, we have no way of knowing where Philemon fits into that pattern. Yes? What is apostolic parousia? Apostolic parousia, what does it mean? It means, the, the word parousia means coming. So when we talk about the parousia of Christ, we're talking about his coming again. Does that make sense? Okay, so when we say apostolic parousia, we mean the apostle is coming. Paul is coming. And uh, there are a number of scholars, uh, I'm not a scholar, Scott's not that kind of scholar, but we're a number of us, Scott and myself included, who are very interested in this pattern. And we have been taught by a number of other scholars to think about it in these terms. So in any event, it's a part of the study of Paul's epistles, where he says he's going to come to them. And so is this a kind of like a parousia 
which is analogous to Christ's parousia. Okay. Well, we'll leave our pondering and go on to verse 13. Now, you'll notice this verse, at least in the New American Standard, uses the term wished. We could substitute the word wanted. Paul wished or wanted to keep Onesimus so that he might minister to him. And the Greek word here is diokonia. And we want to take a look at a couple of passages which will help us understand what this word means in this instance. So let's go back to Acts chapter 24. First of all, And let's read out verse 23 whenever somebody gets it. Acts 24, 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody. Who is to be kept in custody? Paul, very good. So we're talking about Paul being kept in prison or in custody in another instance, this case by Felix, verse 22. Go ahead, Bob, thanks. But he should have some liberty, and none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Very good. All right, you'll notice that here is another instance in which Paul is in prison, and his friends are permitted to minister or attend to his needs. So there was this routine or there was this liberty to attend to the needs of a prisoner and that is true in Paul's case in Acts 24:23. Let's take a look at Philippians 2 verse 25 for a moment and let's read that out when we find it Philippians 2 verse 25. Epaphroditus. Good. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister and minister to my need. All right, now there's that word minister to my need again. And the context of the letter to the Philippians, where is Paul when he's writing this letter? Sounds like he's in prison. He is also in prison when he writes the letter to the Philippians. So it is one of the prison epistles. So notice that Epaphroditus is ministering to his need. All right, so while in prison, a prisoner... Yes? You might want to add Ephesians 4.12. Let's take a look at that. Thank you. Let's see what that says. While he is in prison, he's teaching them something. Ephesians 4.12, equipping the saints for the work of service. Yeah, that is diaconia. Okay, um, here here I'm only interested in those who are ministering to him. And what does that mean? In other words, Paul is in prison, both in Acts 24 and here in uh, Philemon and also in Philippians 2. 
whole epistle of Philippians, in all the prison epistles, what does it mean to minister to him? What is this liberty which is given for those to minister to him? One of the things that they were permitted to do was bring food. So the prisoner was supported on the basis of food from friends or those who took up this kind of, of care uh, on behalf of those that were imprisoned. Second of all, they would do errands for the imprisoned. So ministering or attending to his needs included taking letters out, sending them out, doing errands on behalf of the imprisoned, caring for them if they became sick, bringing medicines and treatment where possible. And finally, with respect to Paul and his imprisonment, there was also the testimony to the gospel that was included in ministering to Paul and in ministering to other prisoners and in ministering to those who visited while he was in prison. So my point here is to observe that this ministry which Paul receives while he is in prison is ordinary service, ordinary servanthood. It is the common or usual service that was given to prisoners in general. This is not extraordinary or official or unusual service by way of a diaconate. In other words, when Paul uses this term or when this term is used with respect to ministering to the apostle while he's in prison, it does not suggest the office of deacon performing the task. Okay. If uh, diaconia here were referring to the office, it would be that official use. That is the use of ministry in the office. That would be official and not common. It would be extraordinary and not ordinary. It would be unusual and not usual. So the term that the apostle uses here is not the term that suggests that the Christian diaconate was attending to him. Now, you may say this is a minor point, but it is an important point. It is a point in which we realize that the Greek terms can have the nuance of office or official attending over against common or ordinary attending and the context of the passage will determine whether we are talking about deacons in office or whether we are talking about general, ordinary, common, usual Christian servanthood. Here, Paul is receiving the common variety, not the official or in-office variety. All right, any questions? That's the context. Every person is a diaconate. Yeah, in the common or usual sense, not in the extraordinary, unusual, official sense. Right, good. All right, verse 14. We actually have a contrast in verse 14. I'm wondering if you notice it. What phrase do you see there that also appeared... In verse 13. 
Verse 13 begins how? says, I would have been glad to keep him with me. Oh, there we go again. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Um, anybody else? Be- read the beginning of verse 13 in a different version than what Cheryl read. Whom I wish to keep with Yeah, I wished. I wished. All right, what do you see in verse 14? I did not want, or I did not wish. All right, so what we have is a contrast between the desire of the apostle in verse 13 and the negative desire of the apostle. I wished that he could remain, but I did not wish to do that, to keep him without your permission. The contrast then establishes this this uh, opposition between Paul's, shall we say, druthers and the responsibility that he had to make sure that Onesimus was returned. Right now, he features your goodness. He features the goodness of Philemon. What, What is he talking about when he mentions Philemon's goodness? Here we go back up to verse 6. Paul there is giving thanks for every good thing which is in Philemon for Christ's sake. So this goodness in verse 14 is related to the every good thing which is in Philemon in Christ and for Christ's sake. Now, one of those things, one of those good things is obviously to receive Onesimus back as a brother in the Lord, which will be specified in verse 16. And second thing, which will be in Philemon with respect to uh, your goodness, will be his forgiveness of the offense, which will be uh, specified in verse 18. And then, perhaps, and then perhaps, something that may be implicit here. I'm sending him back to you, that you may receive him in your goodness. You may recognize him as more than a slave, namely a brother in Christ. You may accept his repentance and forgive him, Allah verse 18. And then having done all of that, Philemon, you would do what? Forgive him. Forgive him. forgiven. Dari forgiven. Already received him back. Already recognized him as a brother. Having done all that, would Philemon do something more? Not by compulsion, but... Not by compulsion what? But do what? Do what freely? Nancy? You're not on your own accord or freely. Do what? 
Accept who back? Yes, but that's already done. <laughs> We've got to get beyond it, okay? Without compulsion. True, 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 true. But what's next? What's next? All that being done. What's next? Possibly. Go ahead, Mary. Send him back to Paul. Of course. I didn't want to keep him without your permission. But I'm sending him back so that you can send him back to me. But first of all, we've got to get this all reconciled. We've got to get this all sorted out. Now you'll notice, he doesn't really say that. But he comes this close to saying it. He comes that close to saying it. So that virtually every commentator says, yeah, you see what the apostle is building up to. He's building up to this voluntary remission, that is sending Onesimus back after the matter has been settled, reconciled, and pacified in Colossae. Because remember, he's been ministering to him in prison. Paul is not so stodgy as to say, I want my servant back. But Paul, out of his love for the servants and his love for Onesimus, is subtly suggesting, we settle this matter when you let him come back to minister to me. Which would mean that the coming of Onesimus after going back to Philemon would be as the coming of Philemon himself to minister to Paul. See the reciprocal mirror relationships here. These are profound attachments. These are profound relationships. They are sweetly displayed here and revealed to us. There are ripples of narrative drama inside ripples. All right, now, we take the contrast of the Kafka clauses, the according to clauses in this 14th verse. Not according to compulsion, but according to your willingness, your willingly acting. Now, another way, synonymous to that. Not according to force, your goodness, but according to your freedom, freely acting. Not according to constraint, your goodness, but according to your voluntary consent, your voluntarily acting. These kata clauses are contrasting, not this way, but that way. Not your goodness according to this side of the equation, but your goodness according to this side of the equation. It is a dramatic sandwich. The goodness sandwiched between the two kata clauses. According not to that, your goodness, but according to that, your goodness. Your goodness in the middle, between the two flanking kata clauses. All right, that brings us to our break time. So 
uh, stretch your legs, and we'll come back to look at this term free will as the New American Standard translates it. Sticking with verse 14 for a moment, I want to suggest an additional narrative layer. It arises from the New American Standard translation of the last words of this verse, free will. So I want to talk about the narrative of the will that is involved in this drama. You wouldn't routinely proceed in this direction, but the use of the term here, as New American translators have inserted it, raises the issue of how does the will will? What is the narrative of the will? Paul's will, Philemon's will, Onesimus' will, anyone's will. So let's ponder that for a moment here and consider how the will operates, the human will, the psychology of the will, if you will, pun intended. All right, now, the will is the mind choosing. Will is the mind choosing. And that is a process which may be analyzed through the relationship of motive and volition. The narrative of the will, the psychology of the will, involves motive and volition. Motive, that which moves the will, volition, that in which the will chooses. All right, now, with respect to volition or that which the will chooses, volition is always as or according to the strongest motive in view of the will at that instant. That which is most pleasing to the mind at that instant or the greatest apparent good at any particular moment, that is what moves the will. The will is stimulated, that is the volitional aspect of the will, is stimulated by the motivational aspect of the will, that most pleasing motivation, that greatest apparent good in the motivation, that which is conceived of being the strongest mover in the motivation, that is what drives the will. Now, when we say greatest apparent good here, we don't necessarily mean that it is good as God judges good. It is good as the motivating agent determines or decides what is good. It is what is good to the agent who is voluntarily choosing. And so the drunkard voluntarily chooses the greatest apparent good to him, and that's have another drink. The drug shooter upper chooses the greatest apparent good, which is to shoot up again. Now, we regard these as vices. 
which means that vices are greatest apparent good to those who are vicious. The greatest apparent good to a murderer at the point at which he pulls the trigger and Curtis kills someone in cold blood, the greatest apparent good for him at that time is he delights in murdering. That's the thing that is best for him. That's the strongest motive for him. That's what pleases him most, or her, as the case may be. So, the volitional choice will always be in accordance with the greatest or strongest motive in the consideration of the will. Now, let's think about Onesimus. What is most pleasing to Onesimus? Well, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been born again under the witness or instruction or teaching or even preaching of the Apostle Paul. So, the strongest motive, the most pleasing thing to Onesimus is to glorify his Savior and Lord Jesus Christ and to act in accordance with that motive. What moves him is to glorify Christ, which means I'll act in accordance with that motive. I will repent of my offense. I will return to Philemon, my master, to apologize. I will serve him faithfully unless he sends me back to serve Paul. The strongest motive in the will of Onesimus after his conversion is to please the Lord Jesus Christ as consistently as he can. What is most pleasing to Philemon? What is the strongest motive or the greatest apparent good in Philemon's will? To glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and to act accordingly, which means to receive Onesimus as a Christian brother, to accept his repentance and apology, and to encourage his servants to Philemon himself and potentially to the Apostle Paul. In other words, this broader narrative brings into focus the psychological narrative, the narrative of the operation of the human will. Now, that term free will, which the New American Standard uses here at the end of this 14th verse, the term free will implies that the will is free, free to act contrary to what pleases it most. The term free will includes the so-called power of contrary choice. That is, that the will is somehow in a state of neutrality. It is somehow in a state of equilibrium. It is never moved by the strongest motive. Which, of course, when you think about it, is an absurdity. A will is not free from being moved by what pleases it most. The will is never free to act contrary to the strongest or most pleasing motivation at the moment of its willing or choosing. If the will were in that state of perfect indifference and absolute equilibrium, it would never choose. It would never will because it would always be 
free from any motivation. It would always be free from any strong desire. It could not even be moved by the greatest apparent good. And therefore, the term free will implies volition without a motive. The term free will implies volition out of a state of perfect equilibrium, perfect neutrality, and perfect indifference. This means that the term free will suggests that the will is free of any motive to move it. Since it is free to choose indifferently, free to choose without determination, free to choose without being necessitated by what pleases it most. The will which is free is a perfectly indifferent will. So the argument goes. The term free will means that the will is always in a state of absolute indifference and never moved by any motive because, by definition, it's always indifferent. It's always in a state of equilibrium. It's always free from being moved by any motive. And such a notion, such a free will, is absurd. So the narrative of the will, which is suggested by that term free will, is a narrative which does not exist. Because the term free will is a term which does not exist. Rather, the will is in a state of being determined or inclined or necessitated by what pleases it most. It is never free not to be inclined by what pleases it most. It is always willing, acting, choosing on the basis of what pleases it most. That's what moves the will. That's what determines the choice. That's what necessitates the outcome. And so instead of free will here, I would suggest that what the apostle is saying at the end of verse 14 is that you you would uh, act by your willingness. You would act by your free choice. Yes, the choice is free. The will is not. The agent is free or at liberty. The will is not. The will is not free. The agent who possesses the will is free. Because, of course, the will can never be compulsed, compelled or coerced or constrained. Now, what I've just surveyed for you is the narrative of the will from Jonathan Edwards' great book on the freedom of the will. That is the masterpiece in addressing this psychological and theological issue. It is a masterpiece because it reduces the notion of free will out of a state of pure equilibrium, out of a state of absolute indifference. It reduces it to absurdity. And it does so brilliantly and convincingly. As Calvinists, we are already on the side of Edwards. 
though we may not understand the profundity of how Edwards demolishes the Arminian notion of free will. But on virtually every page of that great book on the freedom of the will, which Edwards wrote, he is interacting with Arminians of his own generation, quoting them extensively. Quoting them when they say that the will is free because it is in a state of absolute indifference. Yes, that's what the Arminians are saying about the free will. The free will means the will is always in a state of absolute neutrality. To which Edward says, that is nonsense. With the will is always in a state of absolute and total indifference. And that's their language, not his. But if it is, then the will never chooses. How can a will choose if it's in a state of pure and absolute indifference? Absolute indifference! And we haven't even talked about the nature of the agent who has a will. Do you think that the nature of an unregenerate person has no delights and is not moved by what pleases that unregenerate person? Do you believe that his will is in a state of absolute indifference? Do you believe that people cutting off people's heads are having a will is in a state of absolute indifference? Of course you don't. They are moved by their evil nature to evil deeds. What pleases them is their evil nature and how that evil nature manifests itself in evil deeds. Their wills are not free. Their wills are depraved and in bondage to their own sinful, vicious, ungodly, wicked desires. But that's what pleases them. That's what moves them. And on the other side, the will of the regenerate is moved, as we indicated in the case of Onesimus and Philemon, is moved by that which pleases them most, namely to please God, to keep his commandments, and to act in accordance with his holiness and righteousness and truth. All right, so below the surface here is another narrative. It is a psychological narrative. It is a theological narrative. It is a doctrinal narrative. It is a historical theological narrative. It is a narrative of how does the will operate. And the motivation which Paul is appealing to, to operate upon the will of Onesimus and Philemon is the motivation that operates upon his will. It is the motivation of one who is in Christ Jesus. En Christo. That's what drives my motives. That's what illumines what pleases me most. It is Christ Jesus and what pleases him most as the eternal son of the eternal father by the working of the eternal Holy Spirit upon my will and consciousness. All right, now, that brings us to verse 15, 
where Paul mentions that Onesimus was parted from Philemon. Now, having brought up this point that, in fact, the slave was parted from his master for a while, as he states it in that verse, there is an implicit, there is an implicit theological paradigm here to which the apostle is appealing. Do you see it? Perhaps he was parted from you for a while. What's underneath the surface here? God's providence. Very good, Ben. That's exactly what it is. It has happened that within the providence of God and by the providence of God, he has been parted from you for a while. And that is strengthened by that word that in that verse. Or it may be in order that, for in fact, that's what the Greek word means. In order that God's purpose might be accomplished in his being parted from you. God's providential purpose. So what is underneath the surface is actually more emphatically present in the verse than it first appears. Because in that word that or in order that, it is understood that it is God's ordering. It is God's purposing. It is God's determining and directing. For according to our own confession, he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. All right, now, exactly what then precipitated the separation? We read a few weeks ago, Theodore of Cyrus, that great 5th century Eastern Church Father. We read Theodore of Cyrus's explanation at the beginning of his commentary on the letter to Philemon, we read his explanation of what precipitated the separation. And what did Theodore say Onesimus had done? He ran away. He did run away, but what had he done before he ran away? Stolen something. He had stolen something. That's correct. Theodore of Cyrus, 5th century church father, had said in his commentary, that Onesimus had stolen something, and that's the reason he ran away, and that's the reason he eventually ended up in prison in Rome. Is that in the text? Is that in the pet? Is that in the letter? No, it's not. It is a tradition. Now, it's a well-established tradition. For in fact, you will see that suggestion, namely that Onesimus was a thief. And that's why he ran around. You will see that repeated over and over again in both ancient and modern commentaries. But we don't know, do we? The text doesn't say. So it is a speculation. It's a speculation on Theodore's part, even though it may be grounded in some tradition that was known to him. After all, he says in that introduction to his commentary to Philemon that the house of Philemon was still standing nearly 400 years after this letter was written, Theodore writing in the 5th century. We have no reason to doubt that that statement is not accurate. 
Did Theodore also have knowledge of the tradition that came out of that Colossian community that, in fact, Onesimus had stolen something and run away? That is a possibility, but it is speculation. The text is silent. And because the text is silent, as Doug Moo, one of the commentators on this epistle, has said, much to the frustration of interpreters of Philemon, we don't know exactly what Onesimus did. It is a little bit frustrating to be left out of part of the mystery, isn't it? Some of you who like good mysteries, mystery movies, mystery novels, like my wife and I do, these decent ones, <laughs> if you leave out part of the story, if you leave out part of the explanation, if you leave a part of what ties the story together, you're frustrated. How did he know that? How did that happen? Why did that happen? And so you tend to say, well, screenwriter certainly wasn't very good about writing his material. That is certainly not the case in the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. Those are great mysteries. All the details are there necessary to assemble the pieces of the puzzle, if you're Sherlock Holmes. Elementary, my dear Watson, elementary. Okay, well, we don't know here, and so we must leave it unknown because Paul does not mention it, uh, nor is it known uh, from Philemon and Onesimus who did know what it was. <clears throat> so rather than featuring what is unknown, Paul features what is well-known, the providential hand of God. Indeed, the supernatural power of God in the life and heart of Onesimus. <clears throat> Philemon, says Paul, God's purpose in the departure of Onesimus was to bring him to Christ. Wouldn't we all say praise God for that purpose? Even if he had to run all the way to Rome? We would. We would cheer. And thank God a thousand times over that this one sinner was redeemed. Well, more than one sinner, of course, has been redeemed. But nonetheless, if this is what it takes for God to snare him in his net, that's another language that Theodore of Cyrus uses. <laughs> he snares him in the apostle's net. If that's how God tends to do it, we praise God for doing it that way. So, <clears throat> in bringing your slave to Christ... God's purpose is also to restore this slave to you in Christ. You've got a Christian slave now, like you're a Christian master, Philemon. And notice that emphatic contrast there. He was parted for a while, temporal, earthly dimension that you might receive him back Ionion, forever, eternal, heavenly dimension. Yes, that in this semi-eschatological realization in receiving Onesimus back as his master, the slave comes back to his master forever. In the sense that, 
He comes back to him in the arena of that which approximates heaven. And in heaven, the slaves and the masters are beyond, beyond that earthly relationship. They have entered into an eternal relationship. But it begins here in you receiving him back, Philemon. Which brings us to verse 16. Yes. Yes, he's not necessarily contradicting it. See, once again, he's asking Philemon to make that decision freely. No, he'll be he'll be at liberty to make that decision. So it could go either way. You can send him back to me, or you could have him with yourself forever. Either way, Paul would be content either way. Keep in mind that he's asking him to, he's drawing him into making this decision in his own liberty. Scott? I think even if he sends it back, he's still going to have him as a brother forever. That, that is true. That is true. That is true. Okay, now, in verse 16, the contrastive relationships. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, and yet still a slave. More than a slave, rather a brother in Christ. That's how you fill out your outline there. More than a slave, rather a brother in Christ, but still a slave. More than a brother, rather a beloved brother, but still a slave, and yet more. Both in the flesh, namely as a human being, though still a slave, and in the Lord, as a Christian, though still a slave who is in Christ Jesus. Now comes the $64 million question. Manumission. What's the word manumission mean? Anyone? <coughs> Emancipation. Is the apostle indicating that Philemon is to emancipate Onesimus from slavery? The text does not say that. The text does not go that far. And in fact, in other apostolic texts, and they're listed there in your outline, the apostle deals with slavery the same way he deals with it here. He deals with it in terms of master-slave relationship. Even as Christians, Christian masters Christian slaves, or Christian masters treating their slaves Christian or not, 
as Christians. The point here is that the apostle makes no direct challenge to the institution of Greco-Roman slavery. But he places an emphasis upon a new relationship which transcends the institution. The emphasis of the letter is upon the relationship between master and slave in Christ. That transcends the Roman Empire, that transcends ancient slavery, that transcends any any cultural slavery. So, what is the apostle up to? This is not the approach of an abolitionist. He is not waving flags and saying abolish slavery tomorrow. It's not what he's doing in this text, not what he's doing in any New Testament text. But he is making a relational approach, a relational approach in which that institution of slavery will gradually wither and die. It will gradually wither away and die where Christ and that oneness of union in Christ between master and slave prevails, it will fall away into disuse. Now, this is not the politically correct way of talking about slavery. I'm fully aware of that. But the politically correct way of talking about slavery is not informed by the inspired word of God. And so we take our stand here. We take our stand on the viciousness of brute slavery, treating humans as chattel. That is evil. That is not what Paul is asking Philemon to do to Onesimus. He is asking him to treat him as a Christian brother with dignity, with honor, with integrity, with steadfastness, with fairness, with equity. All of those things can exist within that master-slave relationship, even as they can exist within an employer-employee relationship. But the institution which degenerates into vicious, abject, and inhuman slavery, murderous slavery. Such an institution needs to disappear. And where those principles of treating human beings, whether they're male or female or children, treating them as new creatures in Christ or as creatures created in the image of God, where that prevails, the institution will disappear And where Christianity has prevailed, the institution has disappeared. It may have taken a long time for it to finally come to the consciousness of the Christian community, but sooner or later, it'll happen. And praise God that it does. And you do not need to look too far afield to see those cultures in which it still exists. They are anti-Christian and non-Christian. That's where you demean and degrade human beings to abject chattel slavery. No, there are no slaves in heaven. There are former slaves in heaven. And there are no masters in heaven. 
There are former masters in heaven. In heaven, this relationship has been transcended in Christ, even as it has begun to be transcended in Christ, in the epistle to Philemon. Any questions or comments? Scott. Just mentioning that, um, would that, what you just said, fit in line with your response to say Daphne and Thornwell when they were trying to say that Southern slavery was acceptable and that it was a degenerate form of slavery? Yes, it was acceptable and to be perpetrated in, and to be extended in perpetuity which is horrific to realize that they thought that it could never be abandoned. That was the position of the Confederate States and, of course, of the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America when the PCUS was formed in 1861. <clears throat> yes, that, that is an extension of chattel slavery and is abominable. As anyone who has seen Amazing Grace, the movie, which tells the story of William Wilberforce and so on and so forth. All right, shall we pray? Our gracious Lord, through Jesus Christ, your Son, you have begotten us again unto a lively hope in Christ Jesus. That same lively hope which begot, which begat anew Onesimus, in the bonds of the aged Apostle Paul. How we thank you for your good purpose in separating him from Philemon for a while, that he might have him as a brother in Christ, even unto all eternity. And we thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who have come out of that experience because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We pray, O Lord that in our own understanding of the drama of this letter, we too may see others in relationship to us as they are in Christ Jesus and treat them in accordance. Dignity, equity, affection, and love for Christ's sake. Indeed, O Lord, bless your church with the spirit of En Christo, the spirit of the epistle to Philemon, we ask humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.